1: Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese, Sarah Tyson, and Malcolm Keating. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Claire McCool, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Durham University, and Rachel Wiseman, Senior Lecturer of, in Philosophy at the University of Liverpool. We're talking about their new book, Metaphysical Animals, How Four Women Brought Philosophy Back to Life, which is just out from Chatto and Windus. What are the proper things for a philosopher to worry about, and who should be able to worry about them? These two questions, raised in the context of the disruptions and horrors of World War II, animate metaphysical animals. The book interweaves the biographies and philosophies of Elizabeth Anscombe, Philip Afoot, Mary Midgley, and Iris Murdoch, who met as students at Oxford as World War II left the old men, refugees, women, and conscientious objectors behind to bloom intellectually while most of the men were away. Each, in her own way, argued for a view of human life as necessarily concerned with metaphysical issues and moral approaches that the then ascendant logical positivism and ordinary language philosophy tried to dismiss as mere nonsense. McCool and Wiseman bring Anscombe, Foote, Midgley, and Murdoch to life in this highly readable account, sparked by a series of interviews with the elderly Midgley, as the last survivor of the group. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Claire McCool and Rachel Wiseman. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Uh, and I'm very delighted to talk about your new jointly uh, authored book, Metaphysical Animals, How Four Women Brought Philosophy Back to Life. Um, so this is a bit of a departure from many of our usual interviews and that it's, you know, two authors rather than one. And it's, uh, it's essentially a biography, history, philosophical analysis, um, of four different people and, you know, how they together kind of grew up philosophically and uh, responded to the various trends in philosophy and in life in general that were going on uh, before, after World, and during World War II. Um, so, um, before we get into the book itself and looking at the the four different um, women philosophers, uh, tell us about you know, your interests in this, you know, in in, in bringing them together um, and, you know, the genesis of the book itself.
2: Okay, hi, Carrie, uh, this is Rachel here. Um, so my background as a philosopher um, is in the work of Wittgenstein and Elizabeth Anscombe. And um, I guess in like 2016 or something or 2015, I'd, I'd written a book on Elizabeth Anscombe's intention, um, and I was starting to think th- about my next project. And around about that time, uh, Claire and I uh, met and we came across um, sort of as part of our friendship. Claire was on maternity leave and I was visiting her and we were talking about um, we'd kind of discovered by accident just the, the mere fact of these four women, um, Iris Murdoch, Elizabeth Anscombe, Philippa Foot, and Mary Midgley being being at Oxford as contemporaries during the second world war um we discovered that because there was a letter that mary midgley had written to the guardian um in which she said that um the reason that those four women had all gone on to be philosophers and well-known philosophers um in a context in which there's hardly any women philosophers was because of the Second World War and the fact that the war had come along when they'd been just starting off in, in their philosophical lives. And Clara and I were just talking about how completely intriguing this was because both of us, as women starting off in philosophy, was sort of starting to worry about what our futures were and how to encourage young women coming into the discipline. Um, and I sort of said to Claire, oh, when I retire, I'm going to write a book about these women. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then Claire will take up the story.
0: <laughs> well, I said, no, why don't we, you know, why don't we look into this now? You know, who were the men? You know, what were they doing? Who was it teaching them at Oxford? Let's try and find out a bit more. Um, and it just so happened that Mary Midgley was still alive. Of course, she'd written to the Guardian and she lived in Newcastle, which is basically where Rachel lives it's very close to where I live so we thought let's go and interview Mary Um, and so we did we went there with uh, a film crew in fact and um, because she was sort of 96 96 yeah yeah. Um, and we went there and we interviewed her and then we thought no, we've got to go back and that was the start of um, well regular visits to mary she was in a retirement home in jesmond and uh which is a newcastle suburb and we just started visiting her every week every two weeks for about three years you know we would ascend the stairs in this retirement home and mary would answer the door invariably in her hat and beads and on her zimmer frame and and we had tea and biscuits and she taught us you know we were having tutorials with her yeah um and it and all was extraordinary.
2: These, yeah, all these figures, like I mean, obviously I knew a lot about Elizabeth Anscombe, but then people like Austin and and Ryle and Ayer and Wittgenstein and all these characters that we were just sort of names on the page to us. For Mary, they were living people. You know, she was telling us, you know, oh yeah, Collingwood this or and it, it was it was like philosophy. I mean, the subtitle is for how these women brought philosophy back to life, but mm. for us. Like she really did bring philosophy alive and she was so funny and had such great stories. And so what began as a kind of, I mean, in, in a way when it began, we were interested in the sociology of it and this claim she made that because the men left during the war, she says the women could get their voices heard and that's what made the difference. But as we were sort of talking to her and she was telling us the story, we started to realize that It wasn't as if there were just these four isolated, separate women whose voices got separately heard, but actually they were friends and they knew each other. And then it turned out that they'd kind of come up with this response to the philosophy that was dominant at the time together. And they'd sort of launched this philosophical mission. And suddenly we realized that we weren't just dealing with this sort of historical story about how women get through but also something that was starting to resemble a philosophical movement.
0: And obviously that was pretty exciting. <laughs> and Mary... Oh, sorry, uh, Carrie. No, I just wanted to say that Mary was really central to that. So she really inspired us. She's, a, she's really a sort of philosophical activist, isn't she? Um, like she was really insistent and keen that we see the relevance of philosophy to, to the contemporary scene in general. And so... Uh, She actually wrote a couple of papers for us um, that were the basis for our project. So she wrote a paper about then and now um, where she talked about her and her friends sitting in Philippa Foot's living room doing their best to uh, refute the orthodoxies of the day, she says, which they all saw as disastrous. But she wanted to connect it to the contemporary scene now. Because as she saw the kind of work that they had done wasn't sort of getting through, wasn't being picked up. And she was looking at philosophical journals and the practice of publishing and professional ph- philosophy in complete dismay. Um, and she really gave us a different kind of picture of, of you know, the kind of work that a philosopher could do and uh, how one might do philosophy and also a kind of picture of philosophy as collaboration. Mm-hmm. Um, and so obviously that was quite inspiring to Rachel mm-hmm. and I.
2: Yeah, she was so, um, you know, she kind of, I think as we were kind of growing up in philosophy, we were very negative about women in philosophy and about the journals. And we were used to kind of complaining and saying, oh, it's hopeless, you know, analytic philosophy is dead, women are, you know, and we had this very negative analysis. And and Mary just was constantly saying, well, come on then, what are you going to do? And she had such a kind of combination of sort of really practical but also really sort of optimistic outlook that she didn't want to hear us moaning about the men. She just wanted to know, like, what's the plan? How are you going to get it sorted? So right. she really kind of put a fire
0: on yeah. us, didn't she? Yeah. Well,
1: so let me, let, me, let me just say, so you, you've mentioned, you know, the four, you know, Elizabeth Anscombe, Philippa Foote, Mary Midgley, of course, and then Iris Murdoch. Um, uh, Tell us a bit, I mean, you've, you've already said a bit about about Mary Midgley, um, how about the other three, just just to kind of put them also, you know, in the picture before we get to, you know, the trends that you're talking about?
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: as, as as philosophers? Uh, as people and philosophers, yeah. yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Iris Murdoch, people might know more as a novelist, although she's becoming much more well-known as a philosopher just in the last five to ten years. Um so she was from an Irish Protestant immigrant background from London, kind of middle class background. She won a scholarship to a prestigious girls school in, um, in Bristol. And from there, she managed to get a scholarship to Somerville College in Oxford, uh, where she met Mary Midgley. Um, they both studied and Greats, which is a particular kind of Oxford degree where you study classics for five terms. Um, so uh, Latin and Greek. And then you go on for seven terms to study uh, philosophy, mostly ancient philosophy, but also um, some, you know, ca- Kant and some, of the, some modern philosophy.
2: Yeah, so I think Claire's giving you the sort of the little bit of the biography. I guess that the way that Iris Murdoch is kind of remembered or, or what she's best known for in contemporary philosophy is, is this idea of moral perception. And the idea that if you're doing moral philosophy, your focus shouldn't be dominated by thinking about action um, and thinking about moral evaluation as something that uh, applies only to what a person does, um, but also you need to be thinking about how a person sees the world to the what she calls moral perception, and to the idea that there's a, a kind of moral work that we all need to do and that needs to be theorized. Um, around coming to see things justly and lovingly and truthfully. And that the, she, she kind of thinks that, that contemporary philosophy, moral philosophy has lost sight of the importance of that kind of uh, moral work, which, which develops a kind of certain sort of attention to others and, and to reality. I suppose that's, that's where she's kind of situated. And I think if you know her novels, you'll know her kind of deep interest in understanding the kind of the relationship between the moral psychology of her characters and and the things that they do and the way in which they they see things and and missee things as well so that's uh... Iris. Yeah, that's Iris. So Elizabeth Anscombe, uh, I'll tell you about, because she was, in a way, the way I came into the project. So she, Mm. I guess, is best known, um, perhaps, for translating Wittgenstein's philosophical investigations. She was a great friend of his uh, during the last seven years of of his life. Um, In her earlier life, she was a, a Catholic convert, so she comes from a kind of Anglican family, but she converted to Catholicism, sort of unofficially as a child, and then officially when she arrived at, um, at Oxford in, uh, just before the Second World War. And so her kind of philosophical output is, is a kind of mix of sort of broadly Wittgensteinian philosophy of mind in action and lots of writing on, on the kind of uh, practical ethical issues that would be of concern to Catholics. Her famous, her famous book is, is called Intention, which is what, what I was interested in before, which is a work in philosophy of action. So Philippa Foote is, in a way, so Iris Murdoch describes Philippa Foote at one point as like a sphinx. And in a way, she's the <laughs> most sort of secretive and difficult of the four of them. But she was, um, she's very um, upper class compared to the others. So the others are all middle class. Whereas Philippa Foot, she's the granddaughter of an American president. Mm. She's um very wealthy family. She was homeschooled. Um, Her mother didn't want her to go to university because she thought it would uh, ruin her marriage prospects. So she's a really kind of intriguing character, Philippa Foot. But although she had sort of no proper education, she was intellectually absolutely brilliant. And she arrived at Somerville um, the year after um, Iris Murdoch and Mary Midgley. And she was there to read PPE because, of course, she didn't have any Latin and Greek unlike the others. So she couldn't take uh, the same degree as them. So she did PPE, which is... Uh, doesn't require that the language... That's
1: politics, philosophy, and economics.
2: Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, yeah, they've each got kind of completely different sort of personalities, but also different philosophical personalities. And I think um, one thing that was super interesting to us when we, get, when we got started was the fact that although each of the four women was kind of fairly well known within their particular disciplinary or subsection of philosophy they weren't really being connected together partly because they have such different sort of interests in a way. So Elizabeth Anscombe is sort of um, Wittgenstein action philosophy of mind and Iris Murdoch is sort of moral perception and the novels and Mary Midgley is sort of public philosophy and animals. And then Philippa Foot is this very sort of refined academic attack on non-cognitivism so the four of them were all sort of siloed and it was one of the kind of uh, real excitements of the project was how putting the background in place to their lives and to their philosophy suddenly revealed that although they had looked like they were doing very different things they're actually all doing the same thing so it was it was like there wasn't the context. To be able to see what they were doing, as well, you me,
1: right. Well, let me. So let me. Let me. Let me get into that a bit more. I mean, you mentioned earlier, you know, such, you know, usually foregrounded figures, right? As as Austin or Ryle or A.J. Ayer or, of course, you know, Wittgenstein. Um, and you know, the book, of course, foregrounds the women who were, you know, in the same milieu, but of course. This was a time when women in general were not very accepted at Oxford, and you know, there's a number of different you know features to that that you that you know kind of thread through the book. Um, the title itself, you know, "Metaphysical Animals," is is, is a is an interesting play where it's it's really about. When I first read the title, I thought, you know, we're talking about you know these four women. Um, but it's, it's actually the, the human is a metaphysical animal and, and that was the perspective from which they were approaching moral philosophy. So could you say a bit about the, the anti-metaphysical, um, uh, you know, philosophical, um, a situation in which they found themselves as they were arriving in Oxford in what was 1938, 39. Um, you know, who were they, what, what were they responding to,
0: um, mm-hmm.
1: is, and, and then, you know, how did that sort of shape the way they eventually, uh, pursued their philosophical careers?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I guess um, one of the things we try and do at the early part of the book is set out that story in, in a bit of detail. So I suppose the kind of well-known uh, narrative is, is the one that sort of takes a central uh, A.J. So in 1936, A.J. who was in his 20s at the time, he was the kind of young, next big thing in philosophy, um, and he he was super, supervised by Gilbert Ryle. And Ryle sent him to Vienna to hang out with the Vienna Circle. Um, he had a kind of copy of Wittgenstein's Tractatus. And he was there in, in Vienna for a month. And he sort of attended meetings of the Vienna Circle. And when he came back, he wrote this, this book called Language, Truth and Logic, which was a kind of manifesto, really, which was him Sort of piecing together some of the bits that he picked up from the Tractatus and from the, from the Vienna Circle, and and sort of putting together this sort of young man's attack, if you like, on the previous generation of, of male philosophers. I guess this is a, a sort of familiar dynamic. Um, so what he he did in the, the in language, truth, and logic is he sort of took the um, the the end of the Tractatus, you know, so this idea that's in the Tractatus is uh, that everything that can be said can be said clearly and that the idea is uh, the the kind of the new logic that was kind of in ascendancy at that time, particularly in Cambridge, could be used as a kind of weapon to criticise all of the metaphysics, but particularly the metaphysics of the idealists who, who were the sort of the generation before uh, as being not sort of false, but actually nonsense. So um, the idea is that there's a kind of criteria for sense, which is that um, a proposition or a sentence is only has a sense if it can be verified by observation. And that just means that all sorts of bits of language, first of all, the language of the metaphysician, but then also religious language, moral language, just gets called nonsense and because Er, I think writes this book as effectively a manifesto it became a kind of big hit particularly among young male philosophers coming up into Oxford at that time they were all kind of you know uh, as P.S. Dawson talks about you know he read it in one sitting it was you know it was this great exciting moment and all of this this generation of young men they say they suddenly found that they could um, if they were confronted with some sort of difficult philosophy or somebody sort of making a, a kind of stuttering attempt to say something profound about the nature of reality or truth or beauty or God or whatever, they could just say, I don't understand they still, the person, they still do that today don't they? <laughs> they still do it today, and you know Mary Warnock, who came up uh, just after the war, so she's a few years younger than our woman she's she's talks about it as this as a newly weaponized i don't understand um so one of the things that w- we thought was really interesting is is this shift from. I don't understand as a kind of inquiry from what we were calling, what we we're calling in the book a metaphysical animal. So, this sort of appeal to another person to say, you know, there's something here that is beyond my capacity to comprehend. Let's try and work it out together. To the contemporary, I don't understand, which just means no, you know, you're talking nonsense, which is so sort of crushing of any. Philosophical ambition, if you like, so just to bring the story up. so so they're kind of arriving at Oxford when the dominant you know what's on the ascendancy is this kind of I don't understand, I don't understand shutting down of metaphysics. But then when the war comes, that generation of of young men are all suddenly, like suddenly gone. And what is left behind is the women and the conscientious objectors, um, and the refugee scholars who'd been arriving from from Europe in the years leading up to the war, Um, and also, crucially for our story, the old men, you know, the men who had been sort of silenced, if you like, by this aggressive, I don't understand, you know, were suddenly the ones who were there doing the teaching. So, for our women, they were taught instead of being taught this this very kind of destructive um, kind of, yeah. I mean, AJR says, you know, that this is the end of philosophy. Like his task is to to stop philosophy. And instead of being taught that, they're taught by this older generation of metaphysicians and these conscientious objectors and the rest. and And one figure who... Um, I don't know if we've got time to talk about, but it, who was really important for us is Donald McKinnon, who was a tutor to all of them. And he was he was a young man, so he was kind of in a circle, but he was a conscientious objector. And he, in that kind of climate, I suppose, saw that what Air's sort of attack on metaphysics was, was doing was not just attacking, you know, the work of Bradley, if you like but actually the very notion of what it is to be a human and the very idea of human reason as something kind of collaborative and creative and oriented towards trying to understand, you know, something profound, say. The air had kind of got rid of that notion or was attacking that notion of human reason and replacing it with some kind of idea of a sort of calculus that a machine might be able to do. So for, for McKinnon, like the, the the attack that Air launched against metaphysics was actually attack on the human animal. And so this notion of, of the metaphysical animal is one that that McKinnon is sort of developing at the same time that he's having these tutorials with our, with our four women. And it, to us, it, it seemed, you know, when we're thinking about... Iris Murdoch's idea that, um, that we're the kind of creature, so actor Iris Murdoch says a man is a creature who makes pictures of himself and then comes to resemble those pictures. So she has this idea that it's a part of our nature to form ideas and images of ourselves and then actually to grow into those images that we have. And we were just so excited by the kind of the idea of the metaphysical animal as something that you might kind of think of yourself as being and then through picturing yourself in that way, sort of become, if you like.
1: Right. Well, there was a, I mean, there's, there's sort of two different strands there, which um, uh, we might explore, but one is this idea that, that, you know, the human animal is by nature, uh, you know, in some sense of nature, a metaphysical animal in terms of kinds of inquiries and ideas um, you know that that humans tend to seek. Um, and then there's there was this other you know more specific um, uh, articulation of that general idea of the uh, what seems what struck me as a response to a problem of moral relativism really which you know so in a sense that if if you're not asking you know if you don't have or, or maybe m- m- let me put it slightly differently. It was this idea that you know, to being metaphysical, also sort of came along with this idea of being objective about morality, mm-hmm. and maybe could could you sort were those two things just like one and the same for these
2: for these women? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really deep and difficult question, Carrie. <laughs> sorry <laughs> no I mean this is the fundamental question in a way so in a way they be, they become the same because partly because of the, the historical moment that they're at so the kind of the genesis story that Philippa Foot and and Mary Midgley tell is that um you know once air has this idea that all moral language um it, you know if I say you know murder is wrong you know there's nothing that could verify that you know there's no observations that could verify that so moral language gets detached from or separated off from the realm of of, of truth and objectivity and becomes something which is to do with the expression of a particular subjective viewpoint or the, of a culture or whatever um, so that's kind of the immediate effect, if you like, of of that that move that air uh, makes. And and both Mary and, and Philippa say that you know, one of the things that happens when they come back to Oxford after the war is over is that they find that they're not able to Say what they want to say about what's just happened. Like they want to be able to say, Philippa Foot says, to a Nazi, "But you were wrong, and we were right." They want to be able to ground out of ob- the notion of objective moral truth, and there isn't the context, the philosophy available with which to do that. So one of the things that that Mary says is, you know, the, the kind of the proximal or the immediate task was to reconnect facts and values which is that kind of cognitivist move that you're talking about but then Mary's a straight away after that but you know if you're going to do that you've got to do a lot of metaphysics because you've got to reconnect mind and matter you've got to reconnect act, action and intention you've got to recreate reconnect sort of uh, you know all you've got to knit everything back together again so it's not just the kind of You know, what kind of unifies them, I suppose, isn't this sort of very flat idea of, okay, we've got to defend some kind of cognitivism against non-cognitivism. We want to be objective about morals. It's rather this idea that, look, we've lost that stuff because we've lost sight of what it is to be a human and how it is that a human being is in the world and how human life is knitted in. With the you know human reality and and all the rest of that, so in a way they they see I think that the non-cognitivism and that the kind of cultural relativism and the uh, uh, emotivism and all that stuff as, as if you like a symptom of something much deeper that's gone wrong um, in the way in which we've if you like become alienated from our own animality and our lives with each other. And the that habitats and and all the rest of it, so yeah, I think that that the 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 kind of immediate horror, if you like, of the war is my god, you know we've got to be able to say that certain things are wrong objectively, you know for for Anscombe, it was the atom bomb, right like, we've got to be able to say it you can't drop a nuclear bomb on a city that's murder. And and that's not an opinion, like that's a fact, that's an objective fact. So that's the kind of proximal cause. But then they go so much deeper than that because they realize that it, it's not that people are just sort of for the sake of it saying, oh, morality subjective. It's rather that they're so detached from what it is to be a human being that that seems like the only rational thing to say. Mm. Okay.
1: Um, good. Um. So let me, let me. So the book is, you know, it's centered around World War II and um. there, a, a lot of their, what they do, like, so Iris Murdoch, you know, she joined the Communist Party. I think she was, you know, a, a member, an actual member, not just a fellow traveler or something. Uh, Anscombe, you know, the Catholicism. Uh, How did the the you know the war itself? I mean, you mentioned how because of the war, the 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 usual voices at Oxford, the you know your typical male voices, were heard, and other people tended to be drowned out. And those who were left behind in some way, or at least weren't sent off to war, didn't go off to war. Um, New voices or voices that had been silenced, as you put it, were able to speak and and be heard again. Um, how did the the moral landscape of the war itself um affect how each of these four women kind of you know responded to this um, uh, you know, their, their, you, you might say their new f- freedom, in a way, to, to be heard, to make themselves heard, whereas before they might well have been drowned out?
2: Mm. Yeah, it's difficult to, I mean, they're all such individuals, the four of them, so it's hard to say fit for them as a collective. I mean, Mary's the one, obviously, whose testimony is, is most ready to hand. Um and she says if it hadn't have been for us being taught by Donald McKinnon, so he's the conscientious objector, um, we w- I would have drifted away from philosophy. And Iris Murdoch says again of him um that she he she saw from him what it would be to do ethics seriously um and philip of foot actually says he created (laughs) so um so i think you know the fact of them ending up with him which is a function of the war was was completely significant i think in in different ways the war gave them all sort of weird sorts of freedom and a, a kind of gap in a way between their undergraduate lives and their graduate lives that was maybe a space to grow into so that when you know because they graduated during the war and Elizabeth Anscombe went off to do graduate work in Cambridge but the others all went to London and had several years of, of war work in London and then Iris Murdoch went went um, to work for UNRWA the United Nations uh, Rehabilitate Refugee and Rehabilitation Agency so she was working with displaced people in Europe after the war so I think they all had a kind of space in which they grew um as individuals you know so that when they came back to Oxford they were kind of grown-ups rather than you know fresh out of school if you like Um, but also philosophically so Iris Murdoch and Philippa Foot in particular kind of gobbled up all the philosophy that was coming out of um Europe after the war Um, so they sort of got hold of other tradition, so it sort of started to get a sense of other traditions that could help to fill some of the gaps that, um, that Oxford education had sort of uh, opened their eyes to if you like and, and different ways of talking and then of course during the war um, Elizabeth Anscombe got to know Wittgenstein and that was really really important um, for all of them because she sort of brought Wittgenstein back to them, if you like, in Oxford, and and started to teach them all about the the possibilities that the, the method that he was developing in in his later writing um, had for for moral well for philosophy generally, but for moral philosophy, I think in particular.
1: Right, I was I was I was going to follow up with a question about Wittgenstein and ask him mm-hmm. which is. Um, uh, there was a, I, I'm not remembering this quote precisely, but, uh, you know, he himself was not exactly the most, um, you know, feminist sort of <laughs> philosopher, right? I mean, he, 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 he kind of accepted Elizabeth as, you know, the one, uh, the, the one woman that he would allow into his, into his, um, orbit, um, mm. was, uh, I I guess Anskom was you know was okay with that or <laughs> well
2: I mean it's it's funny he's it's a funny one because oh I mean obviously that he he was a sexist um you know there's a there's a reference letter he writes for Elizabeth Anscombe where he says you know she's the most intelligent woman I've taught <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and and you know I can only think of a dozen or so men who were cleverer than her or something like that and you know there are these stories of him you know, wanting rid of the women from his classes and and she was an honorary man and and all that sort of thing. But actually there were a lot of women in his orbit. You know, if you look at the the people who took the notes for the Blue Book, you know, to whom he transcribed the Blue and Brown Book, they were women. Um, His only PhD student was a woman. So I think it's less kind of clear cut precisely what his sexism consisted in and and how extreme it was compared to to that of, you know, those around him, if you like. Um, But certainly, you know, her and him became really good pals. I mean, she was a sort of woman in her mid-20s. He was in his mid-50s. And they became great friends somehow. Um, He admired her mind. He admired her attitude um and for those last seven years of his life they were they were really their lives were really bound up together um in a way that you know shows that they were friends I think and not just that she was you know his assistant or something like that and certainly one of the things that we learned um from talking to Mary Warnock in particular was that you know we have this idea of Elizabeth Anscombe that that she was the translator of the philosophical investigations but she was working with him on the order of the passages on the revisions you know it wasn't as if he was sort of handing her the finished manuscript and her job was just to render it in german they were very much collaborating on on that later work together so i think she is a re- was a really important interlocutor for him as well as the fact that she sort of absorbed so much of his uh his philosophy and then and then found these new uses for it Hmm.
1: so so you mentioned that um you know they they graduated in the middle of the war and then somewhat scattered um uh but then they all ended up back right at at oxford um uh what why do you think that was I mean was that just I mean not everybody who goes to Oxford ends up there right
2: (laughs) yeah Yeah, especially not the women I mean the chances the opportunities for women were, were really even more limited than they are today so it is kind of magic in a way but I suppose one thing that makes a difference and I guess we know this from our own experience but we we kind of forget about it is the the role of individuals to sort of come forward at just the right moment and be helpful so I think um you know for example um isabel henderson who was one of the women dons at somerville was incredibly helpful to mary midgley in sort of giving her advice and giving her creating opportunities for her and you know throwing bits of teaching her way and introducing her to the right people and i think that's true of all of them that they had um tutors particularly in the women's college but again donald mckinnon really important here ad Lindsay was really important here who sort of kept an eye on them even after they'd gone away from oxford and you know could help direct them towards things that that came up when they did so they yeah they had plenty of helping hands um i think iris murdoch she didn't really plan to go back to philosophy. But then over that time when she was working um, in in for in, Unrush, she sort of started to think philosophical thoughts. And again, Donald McKinnon helped her to reapply and come back. So I think it was, you know, it was partly that they must have all known that they were brilliant. You know, they all got firsts they were all really encouraged and then when they sort of reached out for help there was help there for them um so yeah it's not you know it it, it wasn't accidental if you like it was it was part of the ways in which they were sort of helped out I suppose, as well as the fact they were all brilliant right right but then they um, also I mean they you know for, for example Elizabeth Anscombe she Initially had a fellowship, a, re- a studentship, but then the money ran out for that, and she lived on sort of peanuts and handouts for four years or something. So there was, you know, it wasn't sort of plain sailing,
1: right? Well, they they all there. They, you you go into some you know very interesting. I mean, we haven't really talked about their their lives so much, you know, outside of philosophy. What you know, the book is 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 full of those sorts of you know, that sort of information. So I'm not going to, I'll leave that for readers to actually, um, uh, read it. And, (laughs) um, but, but, um, what, um, of all the things that you discovered as you were reading, as you were reading for and thinking about and doing all the investigating, um, for writing the book, um uh, about each of them, uh what was the most surprising thing that you sort of found out or, or about, about each of these people? <laughs>
2: wow, oh my God, we found out so <laughs> we found out so much. Um or me... the, so, or maybe just the
1: thing that just struck you most about each yeah. of them, you know, that kind of really brought that particular person vividly, you know, to life in some way for you.
2: Okay, well, while I think about that in the back of my head, in the front of my head, um, I, I have one thing that I think struck us right at the very beginning and, and was really exciting and, and was something that always struck our students when we told them about before, was the level of um, sort of self-doubt that the four of them all had when you look at them from the outside and and you hear the story of how they all went on to become these really important women and they had you know marriages and children and they were all brilliant and look at all their publications and they all got first from Oxford you you kind of imagine that they just you know floated along in a cloud of self-confidence when we looked at their letters that they wrote to each other and to, to their families and to, to friends, all of them are, you know, even Elizabeth Anscombe, believe it or not, are kind of, you know, suffer from what we would I suppose now call imposter syndrome or, you know, and it was really, I I think we both found early doors that really move in particularly to read the letter exchanges between um, Irish Murdoch and Philip the where they're saying to each other, you know, oh God, will you look at this terrible thing I've written and, and you know, I'm sure it's awful, but maybe you can help me. And then the other one would write back and say, Oh no, it's amazing, but look at this awful thing that I written <laughs> And and that kind of um, you know, support that they were giving each other in the context of that, you know, continual narrative of, oh my god, I'm not good enough and and this is too hard. Um, I I think we both were really sort of moved and inspired in a way um, by that. In terms of the most surprising thing we learnt about them, oh, my goodness. Uh, (laughs) I'm trying to think now. Can you give me a clue? Um, Yeah, I think one thing that really... Um, we kind of knew from Mary about how she related to each of them. And we knew from the letters and from other work that's been done on, on Iris Murdoch about her relationship with Philippa Foote. But we didn't know, and there wasn't really anything on um, Iris Murdoch's relationship with Elizabeth Anscombe. And on paper, it looks impossible that those two could have been close Um, on paper philosophically they look a million miles apart you know Elizabeth Anscombe is this kind of Wittgensteinian um, Aristotelian um, and Iris Murdoch is this sort of Platonist existentialist sort of mystic or something and then in terms of their personal lives it looks like they could never be friends so you've got Elizabeth Anscombe who is this uh catholic you know very uh, staunch catholic um sort of uh, you know she's married she's got she ends up having seven children she's you know all about the family and you know and and all that sort of conservative um traditional catholic morals if you like and then on the other hand you've got Iris Murdoch, who we all know about, who's kind of, you know, she gets into Buddhism, she gets into mysticism, she's, you know, she's got this very unconventional marriage, this talk of her having, you know, affairs with women, with men, she's, you know, so you look at the two of them together, and you think there's no way that they were close. But actually, they have the most intense friendship um, in that period, just after the war when Elizabeth Anscombe, she's already a mother, but her husband and her children are in Cambridge and she's sort of living this sort of slightly bohemian life in, in Oxford. And she's just hanging out with Iris Murdoch the whole time. And they have this incredibly intense friendship where, you know, they both sort of fall in love with each other and, but uh, as kind of these, you know, this mutual recognition of these two sort of fierce independent intellects and they're reading Wittgenstein together and I think for for us sort of seeing that intensity of friendship between these two brilliant young women um, and then the way in which that kind of reshaped our understanding of their philosophies and how their philosophies connect to one another was really one of the most sort of intellectually exciting parts of it I suppose. Cool
1: so let me let me then ask about you know sort of looking uh, looking forward to philosophy today and then uh, you know there's a you know a thread through the book is this idea of you know women being philosophers after you know centuries of you know uh, there's a there's a picture in the in the book of I forget who had kept a list of you know unmarried male philosophers, and all the great names were all you know unmarried men, and this you know this itself sort of gave them or at least some of them this idea about you know philosophy is somehow separate from you know from the rest of life right um which they objected to so there's a thread throughout the book of women doing philosophy despite you know a history of not being able to do it or not being heard if they did it what what sort of lesson um do you think these 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 four women philosophers um provide to philosophers today um, not just women but maybe particularly women
2: mm-hmm. yeah it's a really good question and and I think there's there's so many lessons <laughs> that it's it's hard to say I mean I guess there's all kinds of lessons that you can take that are negative lessons you know about the difficulties and the challenges and the barriers but one of the things that I suppose Mary's voice kept telling us was to tell the story in a way which was positive and which was about making visible new ways of going on rather than thinking about all the ways in which things can go badly so I think um, well one of the things is the importance of friendship and collaboration and certainly for us working together and writing together I mean I can't imagine ever writing something on my own again. It's been, you know, it's so productive and wonderful to find a philosophical friend and to work with them, and, and that was something we wanted to show um, in their lives. The other thing I think we wanted to show was that this idea that it is kind of, I suppose, most um, clearly and ex- and expressed in its most extreme form in you know early 20th century British philosophy but that runs through the tradition that somehow philosophy is this very sort of refined austere subject a bit like um, pure mathematics that requires you to you know be completely cut off from the rest of your life and to to be pursued in this very rarefied atmosphere and you know without interruptions and it shouldn't really connect to the sorts of things that you're worrying about when you're lying in bed at night that that's just the wrong picture of what philosophy is and why it matters and and Mary and Philip both have this idea that of philosophy is, is like plumbing so it's it's a human need that arises from the complex way in which human animals make their lives together. So if humans want to live in big, complicated cities and communities, then they need a big, complicated plumbing system. And this complicated plumbing system, because it grows up over many, many years, um, and lots of different plumbers have worked on it (laughs) with different tools, um, is naturally vulnerable to things going wrong. Um, it's just you know it's the price we pay for plumbing is that sometimes something gets blocked or starts to smell and we need a plumber to come and help us out with it and they you know they think well philosophy is like that you know it's the price we pay for being these languages and creatures who live together and try to engage in joint projects and to build relationships and lives together that we you know we need a language to do that and Things are going to go wrong with our concepts, like it's bound to happen because of the way they were developed at different times for different purposes and by different people. And when things go wrong, you know, Mary says, you know, that we'll notice a smell coming up through the floorboards. But, you know, (laughs) we'll notice that our actions start to go a bit funny. You know, we're not we start to lose clarity about what we're doing and why it matters and how to relate to each other and we suddenly we find that we don't have the right words to describe what we're feeling or to plan properly and and that's the point um where you need the philosopher to come in and and sort of do the analytic stuff which is the sort of rarefied stuff of working you know tracing all the concepts and looking at whether p implies q and all that sort of detailed logical stuff but also you know proposing the practical fix you know okay we need a new kind of concept here or you know this isn't working let's try and imaginatively think what words or images or ideas would work better and so Mary says you know that it's not enough that philosophers have this analytic mind they have to be like poets and artists as well because they have to be ready to offer us a new vision or a new concept or a new way of kind of getting around the blockage if you like our our language is given rise to so I think that idea of, of, of philosophy is something that is a naturally occurring need in a, in a human life helps to really, I mean, so Wittgenstein says, you know, we need to go back to the rough ground. Um, And this is a really sort of practical, uh, you know, idea of what that might mean. And I think that's particularly important and inspiring for, for women, but for, for anybody who doesn't, kind of like that image of philosophy as as being something you know terribly serious and and rarefied and only very very clever people who are brilliant at logic should ever go near it and who instead is called to philosophy because they're sort of deeply puzzled and they want to try and understand what the hell is going on and that puzzlement is sort of personal first and I think you know a lot of young women in particular when they're trained in analytic philosophy are trained to ignore their own perspective and and told that the things that they're worrying about aren't the proper things for a philosopher to be worrying about and I think what we were really interested in, in in these women was trying to give a picture of a philosopher that
0: was sort of
2: pluralistic and invited everybody in and said You know well look if you've ever felt like you didn't have the right words to explain what you were feeling then you were doing philosophy right there like you weren't doing it in a journal but that's sort of the beginning of being a metaphysical animal if you like and so it was that sort of yeah invitation i suppose that we thought was really powerful
1: Hmm. good that that was that was very helpful um Yeah, because it's, it's, it's one of, I don't know if this is a paradox or just something very interesting, but a lot of the conversations that occur that, you know, you, you, you mention in the book, um, and the, the, the conversations that they're having, you know, in their, um, you know, little rooms at Oxford or in their attic or in London or wherever, um, you know, they're ha- or cafes. They're having you know very rarefied <laughs> sorts of conversations about very deep topics, um, which does sort of tend to um, uh, go with the stereotype of the of the philosopher, um, and I, th- I and at, at the same time. Uh, there also this emphasis on you know conceptual hygiene, as as Mitchley puts it, and, and the others, and being clear, and um, that's you know that's also you know part of the air legacy, you might say, or not just air, but you know the logical positivists or ordinary language philosophers. So it's a, it's almost as if You know, there's a sort of grafting of old concerns onto this new way of operating um, uh, that doesn't really reject, you know, doesn't, doesn't reject the method. It just rejects. The fact that certain things are declared nonsense and they don't want them to be.
2: Yeah, I mean they're not. They're, they're all. I mean, definitely. I mean, Iris Murdoch, I guess, is a borderline, but they're all analytic philosophers, and they're all. I mean, Anscombe, especially, brilliant logicians, and there's nothing in them that says, you know, oh, philosophy's really easy. You know, they all recognize that philosophy is incredibly difficult, and that we need. You know, metaphysics, really hard metaphysics, a really hard philosophy of perception to recover the picture of the human that is going to help us to make sense of things. So it's not a sort of, you know, it's not democratizing in the sense of saying, you know, oh, you know, there's no complexity in philosophy. It's very straightforward. You don't have to think very hard. Mm. It's more that they you know, there's a kind of pluralism. So there's there's not this idea that there's just this one method, which is this kind of, you know, let's analyze the hell out of everything until we end up with something, <laughs> you know, that's so, so carefully defined and, and crystalline pure that you can't actually do anything with it. You know, so there's a kind of pluralism in the sorts of tools that they think philosophers need. You know, they need to do that clarifying stuff, but they also need to use their imagination. They need to think about art they need to think about you know they they need to think about who they're speaking to and why they're speaking and so there's a kind of um a pluralism around method but I think there's also um I mean Mary talks about this shift when the young men left in the war from a classroom in which um everybody's competing to win an argument from one in which everybody jointly turns their attention onto a deeply puzzling world And so it's this constant kind of drawing back to, okay, why are we doing this? We're doing it because we want to make sense of the world and and of each other. And sometimes the way to do that is by introducing technical terms and doing very clever bits of logical analysis. But as long as you remember why you're doing that thing, so you're constantly being drawn back to this great huge difficulty which is a difficulty for all of us are trying to make sense of what the hell is going on then it's gonna it's gonna keep real if you like <laughs> um and not to be sort of uh seduced by the fact that you can do this very clever thing and now you know somebody else has d- responded to that clever thing that i did by doing something even cleverer and now can i out clever them and you know, and now your attention isn't jointly on the world, but is on each other and the extent to which you can, you know, prove yourself more, so, a more sophisticated user of this very sort of weird technical tool that philosophers have, have got their hands on.
1: Right. Good. Um, so we're, we're running out of time. So I'd like to end with a, a final question, which is uh, what, Uh, what do the two of you have um, next on your horizon will be are you doing something uh, jointly collaboratively or do you have are you go now going to separate projects I mean what's what's on your uh, work horizon?
2: well we have um, like this project is part of this bigger project we have called women in parenthesis which is meant to be a kind of Place for thinking more broadly about the place of women in philosophy, but also creating space for different ways of doing philosophy and and uh, different opportunities for collaboration. And and we have a lot of people who we work with on that. So that will will keep going. And we've got sort of lots of things that are kind of coming out of the book um, that we're doing. And and then we're just yeah we're thinking about our next collaborative projects I think we're um yeah we're interested I suppose in thinking about now we've got this incredible philosophy from these women What, what can we do with it now that matters and I suppose you know all of us are thinking all the time about the the future of the planet.
1: <laughs> I was just going <laughs> to say, you know, yeah, no, I mean, well, yeah, climate change. I was yeah. thinking, what would they say about it? But I did not yeah. want you to speculate. Yeah. Well,
2: I mean, Mary in her last book, "What Is Philosophy For?" is, you know, she was really worried about about this, and and I think, you know, one of the things that she thought was that we've sort of lost touch the, the images that we have of ourselves and, and how we relate to the environment and the con you know she says the climate emergency is also a conceptual emergency is one of the things she says so she thinks that you know that the concepts that we have for understanding ourselves and our place in nature are now so sort of defunct and malfunctioning that we need we need to do so much work to get back to a point where we can even start to understand what what how we get out of this situation so I think we both feel that there's this incredibly powerful and and creative philosophy in the work of these women and now we we better do something <laughs> do something with it um while we've still got the chance um so we're not sure what form that's gonna take, but we're we have a few small ideas that we're oh, gonna yeah, grow into things over the next few years.
1: Excellent. So well let me uh let me thank both of you again, Claire McCool and Rachel Wiseman, for, for joining us on um, New Books in Philosophy. It's been great to talk about your new book and to get a little bit more insight into the lives and philosophy of these four really pioneering philosophical women. I mean, it's just it's been great and uh, I wish you luck with your with your next step.
2: Thanks so much, Carrie. Thank okay. You. Bye-bye. Bye.
1: You've been listening to my interview with Claire McCool, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Durham University, and Rachel Wiseman, Senior Lecturer of Philosophy at the University of Liverpool. We've been talking about their new book, Metaphysical Animals, How Four Women Brought Philosophy Back to Life, which is just out from Chadow and Windows. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.